This is James Walker, and welcome to Real Talk, Real People. This is the podcast that turns the mic over to everyday people to hear what they have to say about the issues and problems we face as a society. Hello, folks. Thank you very much for joining us again this week. Man, what a difference a day makes. Last Tuesday, Democratic State Representative Quentin Phipps, who represents Middletown, and Barbara Fair of Stop Solitary Connecticut taped an episode about the bill SB 1059, which stops solitary the solitary confinement of prisoners. The bill had already been passed by the Connecticut House and Senate, it was just awaiting Governor Lamont to sign it into law, which he had previously publicly stated that he would. For some odd reason, on Wednesday, the governor blindsided supporters of the bill when he vetoed the measure and instead issued an executive order to reduce the time prisoners could be confined. Much of what Barber and Q, and Q is the state representative, he, he prefers to be called Q, had to, what much of what they had to say remains relevant. So we decided to run the episode and update it at the end with um, with comments from Barbara Fair. So let's hear what they had to say. My name is Barbara Fair. I'm part of Stop Solitary uh, Connecticut Steering Committee. And I'm a West Haven resident. And I'm just on this journey for justice and have been for decades now. Thank you for having me on your program. Thank you for coming. Quentin? So good morning, everyone. I'm State Representative Quentin Q. Phipps of the 100 District, representing half of Middletown. Um, I serve as the chair of the Aging Committee. I'm also the co-chair of the Progressive Caucus and um, a big fan of uh, Ms. Barber's work um, and fighting for anyone that is about uh, liberty and justice for all of our people. Well, thank you both for coming on the show this morning. And I think we're all a fan of Barbara's work. She has worked tirelessly to uh, stop this humanity that is in our prisons. So Barbara, where do things stand right now? I've been checking and Governor Lamont has not signed um, the bill yet to my knowledge. So uh, where do we stand? I've been checking also and I haven't seen it. And I have to say, I'm not surprised. Because uh, when I look at uh, how he his actions were during the pandemic, when it came to incarcerated people, um, it was uh, I seen um, a lack of uh, caring about those people. So I'm not surprised that he hasn't signed the bill. I thought maybe because election time would be coming up soon that he might try to show a little concern to get um, the people to vote. But I guess he doesn't really um, care about that. So I'm disappointed, but, you know, it's not unexpected. Why do you think this is such a hard thing to do? It seems to lay people like myself that people being incarcerated in a space the size of the average bathroom with and just stuck in that space 23 hours a day just seems it's barbaric. And I, I don't understand why this continues. And Q, what are you doing to to move this situation along, or what do you have to say about this? So no, you bring up several good points. So um, one, I mean, the, the good thing about this process, is it, it does not require his signature, even mm -hmm. though I do think um, 
it would be in the best interest of our entire state and um, the best interest um, for all of us that are elected to make a clear stand that this is something that um, should be illegal, that this is um, an immorality that has happened for far too long. And while um, we have not fully provided restitution um, to those that have been harmed by this act, um, that we will at least commit to moving forward that it will never happen again. Um, but as I said, I can't speak for the administration. I can only say from myself as a, as a, as a legislator. So, um, but as I said, it doesn't require him to sign it, but I do think it would, I think it would be a, a major statement um, to do so. And yeah. I think your question around um, the, the, why is it taking so long? And I really do think it's just, we lack as a, as a society and as a community, the ability to really care about black pain or brown pain, the pain of um, those that are poor, the, the pain of those with mental health issues. We really don't care as a community and a society about those struggles, we don't. And, we, and this, is a clear, um, this is a clear case and a clear example of just the, the, the lack of compassion um, for some. And, I, and, the, and the, the, there's an example that I'll give in this, this year is that we've, we had, unfortunately, someone, um, a young kid die, unfortunately, in a tragic accident and, the, and it was revolving um, cars and an ice cream truck. And in one year we made a change because one kid died. This right, and that was hundreds. the kid who ran out, if I'm not mistaken, got ice cream, um, was crossing the street, the driver was coming along and the ice cream the truck kind of, you know, blinded him to everything. But you're right. In one year, one we year. were able to get that on the books and get that on the books. The yeah. same which you might say for Jennifer's Law, which, uh, quite frankly, I'm not a big fan of this law being named after Jennifer Dulos and the other Jennifer, not because... They're not victims of domestic violence, but we've had black women chopped up and dismembered. We've had black women shot dead in front of their children. And there's been, there's no law. You know, if anything, the, the, to me, the law should be named after them, not somebody who is, you know, yeah. has a big home, wealthy, as far as I'm concerned, you had million dollar parents to run to that could really help you. But, you know, um, you mentioned that no signature is required. Why isn't there a signature required here for this law to go on the books? For, um, so the, the governor has the ability, so the, if after, cer after a certain amount of days, um, any law that's passed by both chambers um, will become law even without the governor's signature. So he has the power to veto, he has the power to sign, or he has the power just to let it go through without a signature. Um, but he has stated publicly to our reporter, it's my understanding, that he intends to sign this bill, which was, it's really strange that he has not done so because I expected this um, a week or so ago. I actually, Barbara had been on the show before and I had prepared that, um, an updated video congratulating her on, you know, her success. And I'm sitting here waiting to post this podcast. It didn't come that day. I had to revise the beginning because I said June, whatever date it was that he was expected. And I'm still waiting to put this video up. And um, what's going on here? I, I really, really, it angers me that something like this is being ignored because there really is no need to ignore this. As far as I'm concerned, if these men are so bad, they belong at mental health facilities, not in a jail cell. 
So, but Barbara, you have had some success with Stop Solitary uh, Connecticut. Can you talk about a little bit of the success that you've had? Yeah, we, the success is that we did get a bill passed. Um, the unsuccessful part is that we couldn't get it passed with um, community input. I mean, that was the, the very first thing the commissioner did not want. He did not want anyone from the outside looking into the facilities. And so that for me was uh, a huge compromise. But, you know, I had to go along with what the rest of the group uh, agreed to. And they agreed, you know, it's better to have, you know, we had we got a lot of stuff done. So it's better to have that than to just say no to the bill and not have anything. And so we do have the um the um, PROTECT Act in place. Um, the PROTECT Act will actually, it, it's supposed to um, prevent men and women from being, and, and children, because when I, we talk about it, we're talking about our teenagers also, black and brown, of course, disproportionately, uh, so that they can no longer just be caged for 22 hours a day or locked in a room for 22 hours a day. They have to be out um, for at least six hours, which means officers will now have to work that laid back job of having people in a cell for 23 uh, hours a day is, 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 you know, is diminishing. They're actually going to have to work. Um, we wanted to see more better uh, mental health care, um, not criminalizing mental health. When you put people in places like Northern and you torture them and you break them, and then you want to just punish everything that they do in response to that. We wanted to end that, that they recognize you're harming people. You need to be providing mental health care, not punishing them further by things like locking them in, chaining them up in a cell in a position where they can't even, if they have to go to the bathroom, they said they can't even wash their own, you know, butts because they're in this chained up in this position, bent over position. They can't even sit up straight. So, we did get something, but for me, without accountability, it's like, it's okay, but I mean, it. I think about all the letters that we receive from the outside, from people inside, and that's how I'm aware that even currently, when the bill passed, or before the bill passed, CEOs started pushing back by, not, by calling out sick. And so as a result of all of them calling out sick, now they say, oh, we have to keep them in their cells 23 hours a day because we don't have enough staff. So that's their pushback. And with a, um, assumingly, I'm assuming very weak le leadership that that's allowed to happen. So now I uh, received an email today where at places like Cheshire, no longer are they in 22 hours, now they're in 23 and a half hours. So people are saying, What's the, what is the purpose of having um, a 90 minute phone call when you're only allowed out yourself for, for 30 minutes now. For 30 minutes. So yep. with every step we make, there's like two and three steps backwards. backwards. So right now the CEOs, the unions are running this, the commissioner is allowing it to happen. So what they can do now is blame us for trying to push this bill because now they're saying, well, now you're in your cell even longer than you were before as a result of this. You're listening to Real Talk, Real People, the podcast that turns the mic over to everyday people.
I'm curious about is with all the information that you're you're giving me, I don't understand why people who are employed by the state don't see this as barbaric. I'm really I'm really stunned by this that they really believe that this is okay to put someone in a room and just leave them there. I you know, and I don't understand what their reasoning is. No one has been ever been able to explain to me what is the rationale behind this. But I wanted to ask you, are any of these men that they have locked up in this situation expected to be released from prison? Or are these people oh, that yeah. are... So these are people yes, that they expect so. to yeah. release, and yet they treat them like animals, and they expect them to come back onto the streets and act as if they're part of mainstream society. That's and insane. This, and this is why we have what's going on in our communities. And they'll look on the inside and say, look how they're behaving in the, in the inner cities. And never once think about, look what you've reduced. Look what you've done. Yeah, look what you've right. done. You've broken these people's spirits. You've shattered their minds. And then you say, okay, it's, this is your release day, so go home. And what do they expect? You're teaching when you lock them up 22 hours a day. You're actually teaching them how to be anti-social, anti-social, not social. That's correct. So they are really responsible for a lot of this stuff that's going on in our communities. But for some reason, we don't have what it takes to end it. And you know, I told you once when I was a little late getting to one of your um, events outside that I was really stunned at the lack of black parents. Um, I was really just um, stunned. It would just seem to me if my child, guilty or innocent, was mm -hmm. behind bars, that I would fight for him or her not to be abused. And, you know, this it's is, just... Yeah. This is where we need to make a cultural shift, right, on, on multiple levels. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I, and, I, and I always try to start with from a place of compassion and empathy and understanding. Mm -hmm. And we have to recognize that the current system that we have around incarceration and criminal justice, I hate to call it justice at this point. Because it's not um, just. Because right. it's a many, it's just, there's very little justice in it, right? Uh, there's almost no rehabilitation in most cases, not all cases, but most mm -hmm. cases, um, is that this is a continuation of, to be frank, slavery, right? Of the yes. chattel slavery that mm -hmm. we've always had um, mm -hmm. and the lack of humanity that was in that system is still present in today's system. And until we start to reframe that, um, we were, we're going to have these sort of issues, right? So um, when we look at how come those that are doing their job, right, don't recognize a lack of humanity, if we are not training them to say that these folks are here because, yes, they have committed a crime, but they are here to be rehabilitated. They are, they are here to go back into society and then be empowered to do, make, better, make a different choice or a better choice later on. If we are not training folks to make that kind of... Um, decision, then I can't expect, I can't be mad at them when um, I said they, they call out to make a, a statement to show their voice about how they're, they're concerned or about why they're, they're not happy. That actually doesn't surprise me. So it has to go back to the initial um, training and the initial empathy that we would want them to have for their, um, for those that they are taking care of. We need to give them that same sort of compassion to be like, hey, no wonder this isn't right because we never gave you the power to do so. And even I said, I, my, my main job, I'm a parent advocate for a small school um, in Fairfield County. 
And a lot of times at other schools, they'll say um, parents just aren't engaged, just particularly the black parents or urban parents are not, they're, they're not, they're not engaged. But we haven't given them a reason to be engaged oftentimes, right? So the thing that I have always realized as an organizer is that you have to start with like, what's going what do they want? And do they actually see a path for change and for their voice? Not to just be heard. We get, a lot of times we can get heard. I mean, we're, I'm, I'm a loud person. I, you, you, won't, you, won't, you won't miss what I say, you but I don't need you to shy, hear me. Okay. I need okay. you to listen, right? I need you. I need you. I need you to hear, and I need you to listen. And if I am going to speak up, which takes time, it takes resources, it takes emotional energy. If I'm going to give all of that for me and then have no change happen, I have absolutely no reason to go and participate. So it is actually not a surprise. As a matter of fact, it is a logical decision to see folks say, you know what, I'm not gonna do the advocacy for my own child because I don't see a path to being able to make change. That makes sense. And, I, and uh, Ms. Barbara already gave that example, right? We made the law, the law has still has not been signed and folks have um, done essentially um, acts of disengagement in order to make sure that they can show their displeasure. So there's a, there was an immediate pushback for the change. So I would expect parents not to participate. That actually makes a heck of a lot of sense. So I, I really do think that the first step, right, is this recognition of how do we go back and put compassion and empathy in these um, systems so that we can actually heal folks and take a restorative justice approach versus this sort of like punitive, punishing, um, we're going to, I said, it's just a break you. And not only we're going to break you, we're going to break your entire family. We're going to break your right. entire community. And then when you go back and you enter into a broken community, be surprised when you continue to break things like that. That is a sort of cultural shift in which we need to make. Yes. And, and it's very intentional. Um, I, I want to go back a minute from when we were talking about how quickly uh, bills get passed when the person that we see as a victim is a white person. Okay, I'm sure everyone knows about the incident that happened in Cheshire um, years ago uh, with this white family. And it was white, two white men who, who uh, did what they did. Now, this was used during the discussions about passing our bill. This was used as an example, you know, these, these people who have created these very bad um, acts and we should be caring about them. But what really bothered me, and because I wasn't part of the, the discussion, what really bothered me is that the person who was using that was talking about this Cheshire case, but the two men who created this, uh, this very abusive acts, very violent acts, they're not in Connecticut suffering. Both of them are in out-of-state prisons. They've been transferred out-of-state, and they're in medium. They're not even in high-security prisons. So... To use that 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 um, that um, mm. experience as an example of, of these violent people and why we have to be so cruel to them really upsets me because the people who really is behind those acts in Cheshire they're not in Connecticut suffering like Black and Brown people are and 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 when you look in not only the juvenile system but the adults men and women over ninety percent of those people who are under this abusive treatment are Black and Brown people. So for me, it's easy to understand why it's so hard to get any justice in Connecticut, which is over 70% white. I understand why it's so difficult to uh, get any justice here. We have to wait decades to get something passed when they can come in with something for one year. I mean, we spent time talking about making pizza a, a state 
uh, food. We talk <laughs> about the sports betting, all of these things. But yet when we talk about supporting black and brown life, it's it's a huge struggle. And I mean, decades. I've been working on this stuff for decades. And still, what do we get? A compromise bill that says, okay, we have a year to come up with a plan. See, that's how the bill ended up. We have a year to come up with a plan about the people who are um, 22 hours a day in the cell. And we have two years to come up with a plan, recognize, not execute a plan, but come up with a plan for those who are now facing um, the most harshest form of torture. Two more years before they have to e uh, even come up with a plan. I mean, so what kind of a real victory is that for me? I'm excited something got passed, but without accountability and then hearing from people on the inside that this is how they're treating us now as a result of that, it's just enraging. Do you think if we, if we had more support from the black and brown communities that you would have a stronger voice, uh, so to speak, at the at the at the Capitol. And I, I, I like have a two part yeah. question. That's one part. The other part is: Do you think because there is so much crime in the black community that black people, black and brown people, just kind of, you know, it's it's just more of the same, and they just go, they're just not interested? Do you think that might have anything to do with it? I think it's, it's, it's both, just like uh, Q said, if, if you fought and fought and fought and nothing ever changed, some people, because I'm not one of those people, but some people will say, you know what, I'm not even going to bother because nothing's going to change. So when people come to me and they say, you know, it is what it is, this is the way it's always been, it's the way it's always going to be, I'm not going to get involved. I tell them, you know, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy, because if right. you believe nothing's ever going to change and you don't participate in the change, then you're right. Change will come, but it's gonna come after decades of the few people that are willing to step out there and continue fighting no matter what. And, and I think that's, that's part of the problem because I don't think it's that people don't care because they care. But what I find is a lot of people are saying, oh, Barbara Fair is gonna take care of that. She's doing such a great job. Like if people only knew every time they say to me, Oh, thank you for the work that you're doing. I, I really kind of get a little annoyed because I'm saying it wouldn't be so strenuous if you were out here with me as well, maybe opposed you should, to sitting back waiting. For maybe you should say that. Maybe you should, maybe you should say that, Barbara, because again, it was my first thought when I came to one of your events. Um, final words here. Um, um, Q, we'll go to you for a final word. So several things. Um, one, um, I want to just encourage the administration to sign this bill. I think this is the, that's the right thing to do um, to begin the catharsis and to begin the healing for many of us um, in the right direction around this absolutely barbaric act. Um, two, I want to also be very clear that the level of empathy um, and compassion that I'm asking for for the black and brown community is also the same compassion I'm asking for the white community, right? Or for for the for the, those that are in power. So if it takes, as I was told in this particular in this last session. Um, that if it except if it helps one child or if it affects one person, then we can't wait. Right. I want that same sort of um, compassion, that same sort of framework, to be utilized for all of us. I want that to be for the entire community, not just for some of us. I, I mm -hmm. think that's I think that's a very important thing to to realize. And I think the third thing is what's going to the two sides of the of the coin around 
the work, right? That one, the system is designed to tire you out, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> to keep you out, um, to make it very costly. Once again, both in um, financial terms, in emotional terms, in time, it is, it is costly to do this work. Yes. And that needs to be recognized. And I also want to, the other side of the coin is that um, when you do do that work, change can happen. So I want to encourage us to continue and fighting and being a champion. I know everybody can't be like Ms. Barbara. That's, that's, that's everybody ain't got those kind of godly gifts. Um, that's, that's not, that would be, that would be an unfair ask to ask everyone, but everyone has to, and I like to say, everyone has to do their small part. Everyone just has to do their small part. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, and that's, and I think that's what we're asking for. Everyone to do the, do the small part, um, speak up, continue to fight as hard as you can. Um, share your story, share your pain. And I will say that's the other thing that, that, that's difficult about this work is that you have to put your heart and your soul, especially as black people in this work. And you have to lay out your pain over and over and over again to get an inkling of change. Um, and I am just asking for our entire community um, to listen um, and to truly hear um, all of these stories, I, 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 that's that's my big ass. Is for us to truly listen to one another. And I well, also want to say just thank you for for having me on this time. Oh yes, it, it, it's a pleasure really to have you on, Barbara. Um, any last words from you? Uh, I think you said it all because that's how I feel too. I know everybody can't do what I do, but if I ask you to make a phone call or to send an email or a letter, at least be able to do that. And when we have 9,000 people in prison and the majority of them are black and brown, if we could get one family member to show up at events to fight for those people behind bars, I think it'll make a difference. I really do. And a frustrated Barbara Fair returned to Real Talk on Thursday to give us an update. Okay, where we stand today is the day after we found out that um, the governor decided to veto our bill. And to, I guess, to just make it more palatable, he just kind of attached this executive order, which to me, that's like giving African-American Juneteenth holiday as opposed to the reparations that they actually deserve. And so um, we have an executive order that um, at any time he could rescind. It's not something that stays around for a long period of time. He can any day say, you know, I'm, I'm going to withdraw the, uh, or end the, uh, executive order. And what's, what's really annoying to me is that I was looking for an executive order when people were getting sick and dying inside of the prisons with COVID. And he was putting out all kinds of executive orders. And I'm saying, when is he going to put one out to address some kind of relief for these people who are getting sick and dying, hundreds of them getting yep. sick and, and people dying. And he had um, regular updates every day, COVID updates, rarely spoke about the incarcerated people. But I mean, that comes along the lines with who he's always been, uh, as far as I can remember. He's, we- he has very little connection with black and brown communities. Um, poor people, maybe, you know, being a white, wealthy businessman from Greenwich, that maybe that's where he doesn't have a connection. But the fact that he doesn't even connect with our humanity is what's really disturbing to me. And he he showed that clearly uh, during the pandemic. He has 
no compassion for incarcerated people and anything that's that's uh, any suffering that they go through. And then now he just reinforced it again. Well, I, I'm look, reading from reports that his uh, and the statements that he's given, mm. and he says he's not signing the legislation because, as written, it puts the safety of incarcerated persons and correction employees at substantial risk. I don't know why he feels that way, but he goes on to say that he um, knows that the bill puts unreasonable and dangerous limits mm. on the use of restraints, among other measures that could place people at risk. What is he talking about? I don't even think he knows what he's talking about. I think those words came clearly from our uh, commissioner of corrections, who you know, has been said from day one, the day that he was confirmed, he did not want to see this become law. And when we did had our, we had a few meetings with him and the first thing he wanted to strip out of the bill was independent oversight. He did not want to have any kind of community people looking inside what's going on DLC. And so that was like the first things he stripped away. So when I read that statement from the governor who, has never been involved in the criminal justice with us at all, refused to even meet with us when we were um, first proposing the bill. So I said, that's not his words. That He's getting that from, from Commissioner Kiros. Um, because like I said, he's never been involved with us. If you were really serious about supporting this bill, like he claims he supports it, then you would have at least met with us. We put in several meetings with him to discuss the bill before it got to this point. If he, if he had met with us in the beginning, then he could have voiced his concerns and we could have met those concerns. We'd say, we understand that that might be a concern and this is why we're putting this in the bill. But he never met with us. So to say that I support it um, and it's all about safety is so disingenuous, but you know that's how he's selling this thing to other people. Other people think, well, you know, he put together this executive order. He's trying to work with people. And, and that's disingenuous. It really is not. It was well, never meant to go through. And, and the commissioner of corrections made sure that. And the last word that the governor heard from anybody was a little protest or rally, whatever uh, DOC officials had um, just yesterday. And then the next thing we know, our bill was being vetoed. What about he? He seems to have, I guess, um, thrown you a bone, so to speak, by yeah. saying that that he has um, issued this executive order mm -hmm. to increase out of cell time, mm -hmm. um, including those in restrictive status. Mm -hmm. And he says that that would what will happen well before the bill that you that you had before him would mm -hmm. take place. What do you say to that? Uh, if he expects me to believe that, then, you know, <laughs> that's why he says it. It's just like we have a video. The last time I spoke with him, I asked him, was he going to support the bill? He said, um, oh, I have no problem uh, supporting the bill and I'll sign it, all of that. That was just maybe a week ago. We have the video. And so, you know, the lies just run, they just run clearly off his lips, it, you know. Like I said, once he put the order through and then everybody, maybe he's expecting that we're just going to go away and accept the executive order. And then once it's in, he can end it anytime he wants. And then we're right back to where we were with no kind of um, restrictions on, on um, what Department of Corrections does. But I, I, 
I'm a little confused because the House and the Senate passed SB 1059. They passed, yes. Right. So, so now the governor vetoes it mm-hmm. and issues an executive order. Mm-hmm. Now he can relinquish that executive order anytime he wants. Anytime. Anytime he wants. So mm-hmm. is it fair to say that it's not dead yet? But or do or are you saying, look, this is just another stall tactic? This is just that's all it is because if if people can say people that don't realize how much he is disingenuous and really doesn't care about incarcerated people if people don't know that they really would think that he's really trying to be helpful but because we stop solitary have tried several times to even meet with him to discuss this bill and he refused to even do that and when COVID came we tried to reach out to him. Well, what are you going to do about the people that are getting sick and dying? And he wouldn't speak to us. So now to try to tell me that you're trying to work with us, only people who don't hasn't tried to work with him would believe that. And once he gets people, the public to believe that, then the pressure's off and then he can go and just decide he's going to end the um, executive order. And then things go right back to business as usual, which is what uh, Commissioner Kiros wanted from the very beginning. And there you have it, folks. And as always, we're just going to have to wait and see what happens next. You've been listening to Real Talk, Real People. If you would like to be on the show, have a comment about the show, or perhaps you have an idea that the show should explore, give us a call at 203-605-1859 or email us at realtalkrealpeoplect at gmail.com. And remember, start your Sundays with my column in Hearst, Connecticut News papers statewide and start your Mondays right here at Real Talk Real People. Have a good week folks. We'll talk again next week.